Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. A lot of books and music come my way for Northern Spirit Radio, but today's book and author stand very high indeed on the list. Howard Ross is the author of Our Search for Beginning, How Our Need to Connect is Tearing Us Apart. And we'll get Howard on the phone in a moment, but first I want to remind you to go to northernspiritradio.org and fill out our listener survey so we get to know more about who's listening and how we can serve you better. And, happy days, you'll be entered into our drawing for your choice of either $25 or some awesome Northern Spirit Radio swag, like our t-shirt, tote bag, and some music. The link is prominent on northernspiritradio.org, and I thank you in advance. And you'll thank me and Howard Ross for today's program, because his book is a real eye-opener. Our search for belonging includes great science, piercing observations, and deep listening involved related to our root needs and desires, bias, prejudice, community, equality, identity, fulfillment, and what we need to do to survive and thrive. Howard Ross joins us by phone from just outside of Washington, D.C. Howard, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thanks so much. It's really great to be here. So how biased are you? <laughs> it's, a, it's a great question to start our conversation, Mark, because the answer is, like all human beings, I'm regularly confronting my biases on a daily basis. Uh, virtually every time I meet people, I have biases that are in action. And I think that's at the heart of our learning about this topic has led us to understand is that this notion of bias, which we thought about as something only bad people do, really is the fundamental way that the human mind works. After you've done all this work, and I mean, you've worked with Fortune 500 companies, you've been doing this for closing in on 30 years now, you've been doing this kind of work, helping organizations, corporations, all kinds of groups and people work against using their bias and their stereotypes or prejudices in a hurtful way. Has it actually resulted in a reduction of bias in yourself, do you think? Oh, I, I think there's there's no question about it. I mean, you know, the real issue for me, Mark, is not so much whether or not biases are reduced, because I think it's sometimes hard to know that, but whether or not we can interrupt those biases from impacting our behavior. I like to use a metaphor for any of our listeners who have children. I think everybody who has children has probably had a moment at one point or another in raising them when they frustrated to the point where you felt like, didn't necessarily act on, but felt like smacking them upside the head, you know, and something comes in and says, you know, that's not what a good parent should do. Instead, put them in a timeout or do something else. And I, I think similarly, when we begin to understand our biases and be aware of them, we can learn to interrupt them. And so I think the place where it has impacted me the most is in having my behavior be more aligned with my values. Because you've done this consulting work with these Fortune 500 companies, some really major companies that everybody's going to know, because you've been doing that and because they have a cross-section of the population, has that taught you how to not put into words the biases that I, I think probably you are on the left end of the political spectrum? I think that's pretty safe to say. 
But when you're addressing that group, they're not necessarily on that same page. So have you changed the way that you talk significantly because of this work? No, in fact, one of the things that this new book, I Search for Belonging, was inspired by was that, you know, I've always been somebody, really from the time I was young, and I was, you know, I started doing civil rights work when I was in my teens, and it's now more than 50 years ago. And, and for my whole life, I've always felt like I could try to listen to people on the other side, even if I disagreed with them, you know, this whole conversation about disagreeing without being disagreeable. And when I was a Vietnam War protester, I was somebody who would get into trouble with my friends because I would get annoyed with them for insulting soldiers or things like that. Because I've always felt like every villain is a hero in their own story, so to speak. You know, it always makes sense to the other person. And what really triggered my research into this particular book was noticing how much I was getting sucked into the us versus them that was going on in our culture around the political system and how much less compassion and empathy I was demonstrating for people who were voting, especially for President Trump. And that had me stop in my tracks and say, you know, I have to really find out who these people are before I just judge them and put them in a box. And so because of that, I'm very transparent with people about what my political views are, but I don't lord it over anybody. And I don't I try not to be righteous about it. I just share my opinion and try to remember that it's an opinion. And most people are really open to that. And in fact, really find it you know, interesting to talk to somebody who you can share an opinion without having it be the answer. There's so much in the book that is inspirational to me. I love the fact that you have this research. You constantly are pointing to studies that talk about the deeper layers of how our belonging, our prejudice, our biases, our actions, how all these things take place. And I understand then John Robert Tartaglione is listed as co-author for you. How much of this book do you want to credit to him? Doug Robert is a, is a young guy who uh, I met when he was 21 years old, about five, six years ago, and I sort of became a mentor to him. He came and worked in my company for a while and then went away to uh, London to study to get his master's in the neuroscience of decision-making. And we stayed in contact with each other. And I had started to look into this research and look into the notion of writing this book on the nature of groups and how groups cause this tribalization to occur. When he came back on a break from school and came to visit, and he said, wow, let me show you this very cool research I'm doing lo and behold, he had been doing the research exactly on the topic that I was interested in. And so I said, why don't you come and write the book for me? It'll help you with your career and, you know, it'll save me doing some time in the research. So he was enormously helpful in the research. You know, I probably wrote most of the book in terms of that, but he would help me with the research and find key pieces and put some of it together um, in a great narrative. And so I was very, very pleased to have him do it with me. And he contributed enormously to the understanding of the topic. And also another person who's not cited on the title, but in the foreword is Nikki Caldwell, who's my assistant, who not only helps organize my life to make it work to do writing like this, but also did tremendous work on research and editing and was very much a part of the process as well. Well, wherever this research came from, so much of it has been astonishing to me and impressive. One little graph that you have, maybe first chapter, second chapter, you talk about the vote with respect to Trump and Clinton and how that correlates with Cracker Barrel counties and Whole Foods counties, the the divide there. Could you say a little bit about that? Because that was astonishing. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And it also speaks to one of the real problems that we have today in our increasing tribalism. 
Back in 1992, the Cook Political Report started to do what they call the Whole Foods Cracker Barrel Study. And Whole Foods markets, most people who know Whole Foods know that they generally tend to be in more liberal enclaves, and Cracker Barrel family restaurants tend to be in more conservative areas of the country. And so they were curious if they could see voting patterns by studying the people who lived around these restaurants. And in the first campaign they did, it was 92 Clinton-Bush campaign, and uh, they found that there was about a 20% difference in the people who voted for, that the way they do it is they look to vote for the winning candidate in each of these categories. And what they found was that there's about 20% more people in the Whole Foods areas that voted for Clinton than Bush. And so then they proceeded to do it every four years. And it's continued to grow. And in the book, at the point when I wrote the book, I only had the numbers up to 2012, but the numbers now up to 2016. And that number that started as 20 in 1992, as of the 2016 election, is now 54%. There's a 54% gap between the people who voted for President Trump in the Cracker Barrel communities versus those who voted for Secretary Clinton. And that's quite astonishing. And what it shows us is that we're more politically segregated probably than we've ever been. It's no surprise when we look at the electoral map and we see these huge areas of red and, you know, these sections of blue that on the left, the right, and in the middle of the map. We know that these are enclaves. But what it means is, ultimately, is you're living around people who agree with you. Your kids are likely going to school with people who agree with them. People who attend your church, because these things are, you know, likely geographical, likely agree with you more, or your synagogue or your mosque or wherever you go. We're surrounded by people who are like an echo chamber of our own ideas. And that can feel very comforting because it's nice to know that everybody around us agrees with us, but it can also be blinding in terms of understanding the other. And that's pretty obvious. One of the things that what you just talked about leads to is this difference between political ideas distributed on a bell curve versus a dumbbell curve. I, I love that idea. Is that original to you or it certainly bears out? Yeah, it's, it's just something that occurred to me one day. You know, I grew up in the 60s and even though we had major political turmoil in our country around civil rights, Vietnam, etc., you generally had a bell curve. You had some people on the extremes, but most people on issue by issue might cut across the aisle a little bit. You know, you had, for example, Northern Republicans who supported civil rights, but Southern Democrats who were against civil rights, even though most Democrats supported and most Republicans were against in those days. Even though largely Democrats were anti-war, you had people like the Mark Hatfield Republicans who were against the war, and then you had the Scoop Jackson Democrats who were for the war. And so what that meant was there was an issue orientation that we, I might disagree with you on gun laws, but agree with you on foreign policy, but disagree with you on, on this other issue. And as we discussed issue by issue, we would have disagreements and we would have collaboration. Now what's happened is we have moved to a dumbbell curve where everybody's on the extreme and very few people are in the middle. And the most conservative Democrat is likely more liberal than the most liberal Republican. Not only that, but in this structure, the way it's set up now, it's considered almost betrayal if you collaborate with somebody from the other side, or if, even if you have a conversation with somebody from the other side. I can't tell you how many people, as I've gone and interviewed now more than 100 people who voted for President Trump and had conversations with them in my desire to just really understand, how many people say, you're crazy, why are you spending your time wasting time with people like that? All the things that I've heard from people who I would expect better from, and I'm really surprised by how close-minded we've become on both sides of the aisle. This brings me back to the title of your book, Our Search for Belonging, How Our Need to Connect is Tearing Us Apart. And folks, we're speaking with Howard J. Ross, who's author, and he's got a couple other people that we just talked about who also have helped out in this book. The 
big idea, and I'm not sure, there's a different purpose maybe that you have to have in your work when you're consulting with the corporation, for instance. They all need to work together for the well-being of the corporation. As a nation, and considering the work and the encouragement that you're providing for people to, to discuss, what is the big purpose? I mean, yes, we want people to work it out. Is that because we want peace? Is it because uh, we can be a stronger America? Could it be that it's going to strengthen the species if we learn how to get along, get back to a bell curve instead of a dumbbell curve? You know, look, this is, I think, at the heart of the question we're facing right now. I think that we've gotten to the point where being right is more important than being happy. Being right is more important than us fulfilling our destiny. You know, as a country, we have a responsibility, like any country, to create a peaceful environment for our people, to be sure that the people in our country can live a good and fulfilling life. And the pursuit of happiness was written into our Constitution and our, our Declaration of Independence. Uh, these are things that we say that we believe in. And throughout history, the structure of our country has maintained itself despite times when we've sort of moved off to the ends. And, you know, whether it was McCarthyism or the Red Scare or, you know, any number of other times, you know, extreme racism and the challenges we have with gender equality and sexual orientation equality and all these things. These are all challenges. But inside of a construct that we all agree in basic understandings of what America is, free speech, the ability of different people to disagree, that, that liberal coda that, you know, I disagree with you, but I'll fight for, to the death for your right to have your point of view. Now we've gotten to the point where being right has overcome our basic values. And there are an awful lot of people who put party in front of country. And that's really dangerous for the long-term well-being of our country. And while I remain optimistic that we can do something about this, that we can move ourselves back towards that sense of thinking of ourselves as one America, you know, it is by no means guaranteed. We're going to have to take that on as a challenge if we really want it to happen. I guess another way I could have put the question to you is, is it more important for us to get along? I, you have a conversation that you relate with the Speaker of the House, and he's talking about, are you willing to compromise? And he says, well, we're willing to find common ground, but we're not willing to compromise. Well, isn't that what we're doing? You know, that, that question goes around. Is it more important to define the soul of our country going forward, the identity of our country going forward, than it is to be together? I, 40 years ago or something, my first wife and I were going to counseling, and the counselor said to us, you have a choice here. You can either choose to be right or you can choose to be together. I see that kind of face-off happening. Are you saying what's important is that uh, we should be together rather than to be right? Well, I think that what's important is to realize that, like it or not, we are together. We are interdependent. We're living in the construct that we have. Now, the question becomes, you know, what's the inevitability if we continue to go in the direction we're going? You know, the, the night of the election or the, maybe it was the morning after the election, my son said to me, you know, when he was looking at the electoral map, he said, you know, we're really lucky that all of these blue states aren't in the same location, because if they were, there'd probably be a conversation about secession. And, you know, he was being a little bit hyperbolic, but nonetheless, I think that there's some truth to that. You know, I mean, at some point when people feel like their government doesn't include them, it doesn't mean that you have to have everything your way all the time. But if the government doesn't even include your thinking, doesn't even include your humanity in the way it operates, at some point, when does that government cease to be your government? And the cost of that could ultimately be really quite dramatic in our country. I don't think that we can assume that we can continue to tear each other apart like this. And not to mention the fact it also 
also is getting in the way of us getting the work done that we need to get done. I mean, if we look at things like the whole issue of gun rights and gun laws, just as an example, one of the things that I've tried to do, or beginning with the research on the book, but it's continued because I find it to be very valuable, is I engage with people on the other side of the political spectrum. Even though my politics are very decidedly on the left, I try to remember that those are points of view that I have and not the truth with a capital T. And I've gotten into conversations with people I have tremendous disagreements with about, for example, gun laws. But when we talk with respect with each other and we share ideas, we can come up with potential solutions that can maybe not be perfect for me and not be perfect for them but are far better than anything we've got now on either side. The challenge is the way the structure is set up now with everybody needing to just win every argument, those kinds of compromises that lead to some of our best historical answers to problems get left to the wayside. And and I think what people have to recognize, Mark, is that if you think of the classic American coda, uh, liberty and justice for all, that conservatives tend to focus on liberty and liberals tend to focus on justice. But either one of them by themselves left unchecked is problematic. Liberty left unchecked leads to huge disparities in society, with some people taking advantage of others, doing whatever they want, regardless of how it hurts other people. And justice left unchecked can lead to too much government interference in people's lives, people being told what to do and not what not to do. It's only when we can combine both of them and find these compromise solutions that we can come up with our best answers. I was very intrigued when I read the chapter where you talk about that. You have a a graph that lists, I think it's maybe six different values of things like care, harm, liberty, oppression, loyalty, betrayal. And conservative and liberal people tend to have different relative values for these particular moral values. When I saw that, I said, huh, George Lakoff, and you know of whom I speak, I assume. Yes, I do, of course. He says that those who tend towards the left tend to value a nurturant parent way of seeing the world, and those on the right tend to connect with values that are part of authoritarian father-type values. And I was seeing your graph as a representation of what he had talked there. Could you explain how those do or don't correlate with left-right? Sure, absolutely. I think, it, you know, I think that, that Lakoff's distinction of the liberals being the mother of the country and conservatives being the father of the country is, is an interesting way to put it. The particular distinctions you're talking about actually comes from the work of Jonathan Haidt, who wrote a brilliant book called The Righteous Mind, which I encourage everybody to read. I think it's one of the most important books in America today. And John, who's a professor at NYU, was really looking at understanding sort of the moral values underpinnings of conservatives and liberals. And in the research, what they identified was that there are these six distinctions of how people determine their values. The metaphor they use, which I think really works, is it's a little bit like the taste buds on your tongue. You know, you have the salty taste bud and the sweet taste bud, and and the combination of those gives us the flavor that we get when we're tasting things. Well, they've identified these six. The first is how much concern people have for care or harm of people, whether people are being harmed or whether they're being cared for. The second one is how fair people are being treated. The third is um, loyalty or group loyalty particularly. A fourth is authority versus subversion. Do you believe in hierarchy, in other words? Another one is liberty versus oppression. How strongly do you feel fight for freedom? And then the last one is what he calls purity and sanctity, and that is those are usually the things that are somewhat immutable to us. Uh, Think about uh, topics like abortion. Is an immutable topic for many people. Um, On the left, for many people, climate change is an immutable topic. It just is. There's no compromising on it. And when he studied, really, 
hundreds of thousands of people who they tested who were self-defining as either liberals or conservatives, what they found was a very different pattern between the two, that liberals tend to focus very strongly on making sure people aren't harmed, people are treated fairly, and that people are given the opportunity to be free. But don't worry so much of group loyalty. You know, we're citizens of the world. We're not Americans, hence the global versus non-global conversation that we're in. Not so much worried about hierarchy. You know, resist authority is the classic liberal bumper sticker, right? And where purity and sanctity concern, not as many sort of core immutable issues. Again, do your own thing, the liberal coda. Conservatives, interestingly enough, are somewhat lower on those three, but virtually even all across the board. So they're higher on the latter three and lower on the former three, and there's a sort of a consistent pattern across the board. So we can see if we look at something like the Syrian refugee crisis, that liberals say, well, these people are being harmed. We have to save them. They deserve to have an opportunity to be free, and they have deserve to have an opportunity to be treated fairly. Who cares if they're not American? There's still people who are suffering. Who cares about extreme vetting or, or following process? We need to save these people now. And who cares that they're Muslims? You know, we have room here for everybody. Conservatives will say, wait a second, you know, we have to take care of Americans first. If we bring in all these Muslims, how are they going to change our culture, purity and sanctity, and loyalty and betrayal? We don't want them to be harmed, but there are other things we have to take into account. And, and so we can begin to see how this issue where we tend to label each other, well, you're too, being too soft and not protecting us, or you're being too racist or something like this, is actually a difference in the fundamental values and how we see that played out in front of us. And when you begin to understand it, it gives you an opportunity to say, okay, well, wait a second now. If you're concerned about security and safety and loyalty to our group, and I'm worried about people being taken care of, how can we put our heads together and come up with a solution to this problem that accomplishes both? And this is where I'm encouraging people to get to, to the why under the surface of our beliefs. Often we disagree about our beliefs, but we don't question the why under the surface, which is where the solutions always occur. Just to give you a classic example is my wife and I have a disagreement about when we're sleeping, whether or not we should leave the window open in the bedroom. She likes the window open. I like it closed. And for a while, we kind of went back and forth, and I closed it, and she'd open it, and I closed it, and she opened it. Finally, one night, we said, why do you like it that way? You know? And she said, well, because I like the fresh air, and I like it a little bit cooler. And I say, well, I like it warmer, but it's noisy. So we went out, and we got one of those electric blankets where I can have half the bed warm if I wanted to, and I can use earplugs if I need them. And she could keep the window open, and everybody's needs are met. And that's the kind of thinking that I'm trying to get us to do, both in the political, racial, and other ways. There's something that I don't think I found in the book, Howard, exactly how you define liberal and conservative. But several years ago, there was a study that came out. It was a identifying liberal, conservative, a number of different characteristics of the group and how they distributed in the population. What I found particularly interesting about that study was their definition of liberal is the bigger your circle of we is, the more liberal you are. How do you define it? How is it in the studies that you're sharing with people? Where does that definition of liberal conservative come from? And most of these studies, uh, in fact, all of them I can think of, usually allow people to self-define. So the basis is really on people's self-definition. I do think that the definition that you just gave is probably a good start. I tend to think of people on the more liberal side who see the needs of the whole as not necessarily more important than the needs of the individual, but certainly very important, that individual rights and the needs of the body politics, so to speak, have to be balanced. I think conservatives tend to fall more in the lines of liberty and people having freedom to do what they want to do. 
Now, of course, we've associated certain political points of view with liberalism or with conservatism, which in fact may be very inconsistent with the fundamental philosophical constructs of liberal and conservatism. For example, we see conservatives who say they believe in individual rights, that the government shouldn't tell people what to do, and nonetheless take the position that it's fine for the government to tell you not to smoke marijuana or not to get an abortion. And similarly, there are liberals who argue for inconsistencies in their point of view as well. So we We've all are basically hypocrites as human beings, and this is one of the things that we have to come in really into touch with is that all human beings to some degree are hypocrites. All of us will justify what we want and find some way to fit it into a conversation. I have conversations with my liberal friends, and once again, that's where I live in that philosophical construct. Now, what for me is the uh, abomination of people rioting in the streets to stop conservative speakers from speaking at college campuses, because even though I may disagree at my very bones to something Ann Coulter is going to say, I still would fight to the death for her right to say it, because I know that if we allow her to be stifled, it's just a matter of time before DeRay McKesson gets stifled because he wants to speak about Black Lives Matter. This is, for me, fundamental to the American experiment, this notion that people have a right to different opinions and that there's value to us as a society to have people explore things from different dimensions and learn to collaborate across them. That having been said, Howard, you were talking earlier about some of the different values that conservatives emphasize over liberals. Guns, you know, conservatives, I think, are much more likely to say it's really important to have a big stockpile of guns, Right. Even though liberals may demonstrate and be very noisy, they're much less likely, I think, in general, to do violence because this kind of anti-war, anti-violence thing is connected with the liberal end. So dictatorships, don't they almost always come out as conservative? I guess Stalin is a dictator in the Soviet Union, so it's certainly not always that way, and certainly you've got Castro. Don't the values that support dictatorship usually coincide more strongly with those that are part of conservatives? Well, I think that, you know, it's always interesting for me because I was trained as a historian. You know, I'm I'm a history major, and and I've always been fascinated with history. And it's interesting how we we cherry-pick, I think, liberals pick examples of conservatives authoritarians and conservatives pick examples of liberal authoritarian. I think we sometimes conflate the issues of liberalism and conservatism with question of authoritarian versus people who believe in government. And I think authoritarianism can come from both directions. If you look like somebody like Chairman Mao or Stalin or Castro when they started, that these were people who for the most part started by, you know, maybe not Stalin so much, but certainly Chairman Mao and Castro started by saying we have to find a way to feed people. People aren't being fed. We need to find a way to get education for all people and not just for the elite. You know, Castro, of course, overthrew a dictator, Batista, who was extremely elitist and supported the aristocracy. Then there are others, Franco in Spain and the Taliban and others who were much more authoritarian on the conservative side. So I think that the real issue is not where these kinds of governments are concerned. is not so much liberal or conservative. It's authoritarian or either authoritarians on one end or people who believe in the rights of people to self-determination on the other. But I would say that George Lakoff says conservatives, authoritarian father, nurturing parent is the liberal end. At least it starts out that way. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think there's something else in Lakoff's distinctions we can think about, which is that, that they sometimes overlap, but not always. There's a difference between personally being conservative and politically being conservative. Now, in terms of personal conservatism, for example, there's research that 
shows that people who see themselves as conservative are more likely to have stronger functioning amygdalas. The fear center of the brain functions more strongly. And so they tend to be more worried and concerned about danger. And therefore, for example, students who declare themselves as conservative have more cleaning supplies in their dorm rooms, whereas liberal students tend to have things like travel brochures or about exciting adventures and things like this. And sometimes the political conservative line and the personal conservative line are not necessarily aligned. Somebody could be personally very conservative, but still be somewhat liberal politically and and vice versa. And that sometimes is where I think the confusion comes from. We're going to get into more detail here with Howard Ross about his book, Our Search for Belonging, How Our Need to Connect is Tearing Us Apart for Spirit in Action. But first, I want to remind you, you are listening to Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web, northernspiritradio.org, where there's almost 13 years of our programs, free listening and download. There's links to our guests. So when you want to track down Howard Ross, you can search for Our Search for Belonging. But you could also go to the link to cookross.com, where he's been working and doing this kind of consulting, insightful work, and authoring for almost 30 years. So those links are on northernspiritradio.org, as well as place to post comments, make our communication two-way. Please do that. We will listen if you post a comment. And uh, there's also a place to donate, and this is full-time work that is supported exclusively by your donations, not by government and not by corporations, but by you, the listeners. So please do support us by clicking donate. Even more important, though, I'd say, is to support your local community radio station. These kind of stations in the community and of the community and by the community all across the nation, they're so invaluable, especially in an age where so much of our media is owned, I think 90% plus is owned by six corporations. Please support your local community radio station first. Again, we're with Howard Ross. May 8th, Our Search for Belonging came out, and it's filled with invaluable research. There's one I wanted to refer to right away that I was stunned by. I'm guessing that John Robert brought this into your collaboration. It was about infants, maybe eight or nine months old, down to 14 months old, and their reactions remind me what it was. It was stunning. Yeah, it's really quite remarkable. This is actually some research that came from the Yale Baby Lab that actually both uh, John Robert and I found simultaneously. So it was was fascinating. We both came about this piece. But the Yale Baby Lab has been doing some really remarkable experimentation on understanding the development of moral values in children. And they've done a number of studies uh, with these children who are eight and nine months old. So one of them in particular was they give children, and again, these little babies, they'll give them two bowls of food to eat. And the uh, children will choose one or the other, uh, graham crackers or green beans, for example. And then the researcher leaves room and a different researcher who hasn't seen the children's choice so that they can't pollute the research comes in with two stuffed dogs and has the dogs pretend to eat the food and then offers the dogs to the infants, to these babies. And more than 80% of the time, a nine-month-old baby chose the dog that ate the thing that they liked. So as young as nine months old, we're already determining, you like what I do, therefore you're on my team. There are other similar examples when a child had chosen one as their favorite, and then they did a little play where the dogs would be mean to each other, and the child would associate with another stuffed animal that was nice to the dog that they liked and would 
discard the stuffed animal that was mean to the one that they didn't like, and vice versa. If they liked the dog, they would choose the one that was mean to the other dog, even if they were mean to the other dog, because they liked that dog. And we're talking about eight, nine, ten months old children already determining this sense of moral value that shows an insider-outsider point of view. And what this all leads us to see is that this notion of us versus them is inherent to who we are as human beings. We immediately divide people as a way of figuring out where we're going to be safe, who we're going to be safe with. As you know, the check on religion, we start with what's been called by some of the funniest religious joke ever. And the joke comes from a guy named Emo Phillips. And then it goes something like this. A guy walks up to a person who looks like they're climbing over a bridge to jump off. And he runs up and he says, don't jump off. Why are you jumping? And the guy says, nobody loves me. And so the man says to him, well, God loves you. Do you believe in God? And he says, yes, I believe in God. He says, good, so do I. He says, are you Jewish or Christian? He says, I'm Christian. He says, good, so am I. He says, what denomination? He says, Baptist. He says, me too. I'm Baptist too. He says, are you Baptist Northern or Baptist Southern? He says, Baptist Northern. He says, me too. He says, are you Baptist Northern Western region or Baptist Northern Eastern region? He says, Baptist Northern Western region. He says, me too. He says, Baptist Northern Western region, compact of 1712 or compact of 1836? He says, compact 1836. He says, die heretic and pushes him off the bridge. So, you know, we're constantly forming these partnerships, but then separating ourselves or, or said another simpler way, an old Bedouin proverb, me against my brother, my brother and I against my cousin, my brother and cousin and I against the stranger. Right. Hierarchies of belonging, I guess. is Exactly. Exactly right. Another, I don't think this was in the chapter on religion, although it really is another form of religion. You talked about a study where some people are tested on some of their allegiances, and particularly, you know, which sports team they have affinities with. And then they get sent to another place and they have to pass someone who's having a scuffle based on team jerseys. Could you talk about that one? Because that was, I mean, that's religion at work there, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, this was done in the UK and they they had different soccer teams that people are very strongly affiliated with. And basically what it comes down to is their level of compassion was directly related to whether or not the person who was in trouble was wearing their team jersey. When the person in trouble was wearing their team jersey, they stopped to help them repeatedly. When the person in trouble was wearing a different team's jersey, they walk right by them. And we can begin to see here what's happening is we're moving from belief to identity, that stopping and helping somebody is a fundamental value that I'm sure most of us were raised to do. You know, the Good Samaritan story from the Bible, of course, is something that most of us heard at one time or another. Almost every person I know was raised on some version of the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And yet, the reality is that our empathy becomes directly related to how we identify. And, and I think this is really important. It's one of the things that, you know, in studying the aspect of religion that we begin to realize, which is that our religions have now become less about the things that we value or the principles beyond that religion and more about our identification with that religion. It's not so much that I'm going to live Christian, Jewish, Muslim, or Buddhist, or Hindu values. It's more I am one of those things. And therefore, I begin to relate to people from that sense of identity, even if my behavior is completely inconsistent with the values that are there. And in doing that, what I often do is I selectively choose those things that I'm going to pay attention to and selectively ignore those things that I won't. So if, for example, we look at sexual orientation and marriage equality argument, Often what Christians cite is Leviticus 17.22, man shall not lie lying with another man. 
and that's cited as the biblical source of the sin of homosexuality by some people. I say that in quotes. Whereas we ignore completely any number of other parts of the Bible that we choose to have uncomfortable, whether it's you could take your neighbor as your slave or if you wear clothing coming from two different fabrics, then you have to be beaten and any number of other things that are obviously obsolete and not consistent with our time. We tend to ignore them because we cherry pick the things that fit our story. We think we're rational as human beings, but in actuality, we're rationalizing. Even that example that you give, the Good Samaritan, that story as told by Jesus is essentially an anti-us. I mean, you know, who's your neighbor? Who acted as your neighbor? It's based on your values instead of on your grouping. But as you say, that's an uphill battle these days. Is that in large part because of religious affiliation? Identity in terms of religion can be used as uh, you're either good or you're bad. I'm a Quaker, and I don't think we tend to identify that way, right? You know, people aren't Quaker. That doesn't mean they're not good or bad. I mean, it just this is a group that I happen to be able to work with pretty well and I think has generally done in a good direction, helps me move in a good direction. But I have a feeling that a number of my evangelical friends tend to think, if I'm not in this group, I'm bad. Right. I think it's, it's unfortunate because I think the reality is we can take any religion, literally any religion on the planet, and we can find people who show nobility through the practice of that religion and people who show whatever the opposite of nobility, evil, through the practice of that religion. We know that there are people who use Christianity as a basis for the civil rights movement and for the equal rights movement for all people around this planet for years and years and years. And there are also people who cited the Bible as a reason to justify slavery and apartheid and other abominations. The Crusades and the Inquisition. The Crusades and... You know, the same is true for Jewish people who believe in the Jewish teaching of tikkun olam to heal the world, that we should do something better. And then there's, on the other side, Brooke Goldstein, who uses Judaism to justify going in and slaughtering people in a mosque. Or the Buddhist people who, you know, Buddhism is, is probably the most peaceful religion on the planet in terms of its teachings, and yet we see what's happening to the Rohingya now in Myanmar. Human beings are not rational, and we find some way to justify things that are inconsistent with our belief systems. I think John Kenneth Galbraith may have put it best, the great economist, when he said that most human beings, given a strongly held point of view and evidence to the contrary, will quickly go about refuting the evidence. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and one of the central points, I think, that you bring out in the book, and again, folks, the book is Our Search for Belonging, How Our Need to Connect Us is Tearing Us Apart by Howard Ross and John Robert Tartaglione and a couple other folks who have contributed significantly. One of the key points in the book is that we are hardwired on a very basic level, as you cited the information on infants. From a very early age, there's us versus them. It's deep in our bones and deep in our cells. And yet, it's tearing us apart, as you say in the title. Actually, one of the things I've been kind of hopeful about is if I look over the broad sweep of history, we have moved consistently upward in terms of a larger group that is us, that is we. I mean, it used to be a band of 20 or 30 people was the us, right? And any other band was suspect and outside. And then, you know, there's city-states, there's Athens, city-states, but now there's Greece, but now there's European Union, and now there's the United Nations and so on. The circles have been enlarging because of that. And yet, within those large groups, we still find ways to have compassion for some people and lack of compassion for others. 
I want to come back to the original question I was asking you is, what's the purpose of your book? What do you hope happens because people read this and they can see their biases in action? They can see where they come from. They can see how to talk to people better. What do you hope happens to our nation and to the world as a result of that? Well, I mean, my hope is that people will start reaching out to each other and say, you know what, we may disagree, but I really want to understand you. More than that, I want to affirm your humanity even as we disagree. I know for myself, I've had a remarkable experience in talking to a lot of people who I disagree with very strongly politically. There was one person in particular who lives in Florida who we originally met when he reacted to a Twitter feed with some kind of a critical comment, a Twitter feed that I put out with with a critical comment. And my response, which usually is in situations like that, is I'll be glad to have a civil conversation with you about this if you'd like. And we've gotten into a conversation that's lasted now for probably close to 20 months. And we have very strong debates. We disagree about a lot of things, but we respect each other and we've developed a friendship. And even though we've never actually seen each other physically because we live in different parts of the country, we've talked on the phone, we send notes to each other. And you know, he sent me a note saying, gee, I see you travel for business. If you're ever in my city, I'd love to take you to dinner. And I haven't gotten a chance yet, but I would in a minute if I were there. And his city was one of the cities that was threatened by the, one of the hurricanes. And I sent him a note sending, you know, love and prayers to him and his family and and at some point we had this conversation. He said, look, I know I probably frustrate you because you haven't really changed my mind on much. He said, but I want you to know you've changed my mind on something really important. You've changed my mind about liberals. And I certainly believe the same thing, that my assessment of conservatives has been dramatically changed by having these conversations now with, you know, 100 people who voted for President Trump. It's not that it's shifted my point of view, particularly, although I do think I have a more well-rounded understanding of a lot of positions because I can see the point of view from the other side, even if I don't agree with it. But it's definitely reminded me that there's humanity that shows up on both sides, that there are really good, decent people who are just trying to figure this out, and they may come to a different way of figuring out than I do, but it doesn't change their goodness or their humanity, and it doesn't change how they can be a good neighbor or a good friend or somebody who I want as my grandchild's uh, sports coach or working in my company for that matter, you know? And so it's, so I think that it's something where that all of us can do is to start to expand ourselves outside of the tight knit kind of window of the world that we have today and start to expand into an understanding of people beyond ourselves. I mean, it's really tragic when you think about the fact that thousands of families have canceled Thanksgiving dinner in the last couple of years rather than be at the table with, you know, old Uncle Mel who, who disagrees with them politically. I mean, that to me is really tragic that these political identities we've developed are even surpassing our family connections. Is there a danger of civil war? You know, it's always hard to see. I mean, I tend to be an optimist by my nature, and I think that if we look at history, that history does tend to show that the human species is improving rather than decaying. I mean, Steven Pinker just came out with a brilliant book about this called Enlightenment Now, I mean, which he studied the last 250 years of history during this period of the Enlightenment. And in virtually every measurable way that we can find, life on the planet is getting better. The fewer deaths by starvation, fewer deaths by disease, fewer deaths by warfare, fewer deaths by individual violence, more human equality on the planet than ever before. You know, there's no question that if you were ever going to be born at a time in history, this would be the time to be born. And this notion of harkening back to the good old days is really somewhat odd when you think about the fact that that's actually the measurable truth is that this is a better place to live. The planet Earth is a better place to live now. The United States is a better place to live now than it's ever been in terms of any measurable quality. But one of the challenges that we have is we have a media that, like you said, has now become a business. 
And the way you get business is by focusing not on the positive but the negative because the human brain is designed to see the negative first for protective reasons. I mean, if you were to design a brain and evolve it over thousands of years, would you have it be designed to see threat coming your way first or reward? Well, the obvious answer is threat because if you miss reward when it's coming your way and it surprises you, it's a nice surprise. If you miss threat when it's coming your way, it's death. The brain is actually requires about 20% more glucose and brain energy to see something positive than it is to see something negative. And so we tend to focus on the negative on both sides rather than looking for the places where we can show that collaboration actually works. There's a wonderful guy named Dr. William Smith who's up in Boston. He goes by Smitty, and Smitty's at Wheelock College, and he created something called the Institute for Race Amity. And he basically what they study and try to promote are the cases in history where people have worked together across race to make extraordinary things happen. And there are many, many cases of this. And I think that we could do well by consciously focusing on some of these positives as, as a society and looking at how we can get back to some of those places where we've decided that working together actually makes things happen. Again, there's studies in the book that document each step of this, folks. And so do read Our Search for Belonging. There's one thing I wanted to I don't know, maybe take you to task on or explore your reading. At one point when you're talking about race and politics and identity politics is part of the issue. And there's also, uh, you cite some studies, I think it's about dogs being shocked and how they can have learned helplessness. First, talk about that idea of learned helplessness and the studies that support it so that it's not just, I mean, it certainly happens in humans and animals and everybody. Yeah, I mean, learned helplessness is basically a patterned response. I mean, they've resp- the studies you're talking about with Martin Seligman, I think, was a researcher who did that, and they they would put these dogs in a circumstance where some of them were shocked and they had something that they could do to stop it. Most of them would stop it. And then they had others who were in a circumstance in which they were shocked, but there was nothing they could do. And at some point, they stopped trying. And I think that, you know, we've seen this in, in social circumstances, in a lot of cases for populations, whether by who have been isolated either by race or socioeconomic status, where they just simply have come to believe that there's no chance for them to get out and out of their resignation, they stop trying. And I think it's one of, this is one of the most insidious forms of bias or, or the results of bias and discrimination in our society when, when not only do I not have opportunity, but because the fact of my not having opportunity is so systemically ingrained in my life experience that I've stopped even considering that I might have an opportunity or might have a possibility. And certainly this is something that's been seen for people in captivity uh, in the, the studies that were done in the concentration camps. Victor Frankl's great work in the concentration camps, for example, he found that the people who managed to survive had in, inordinately, a large number of those people, somehow maintained their sense of purpose in life. They had some reason, something to live for. Whereas people who didn't have something like that often you know, were the ones who, who didn't survive. The same is true, I think if you remember, I, I quote uh, one of my clients that done a lot of work for the Air Force, and one of my clients who's an Air Force colonel shared a story with me about a guy who he got to know quite well who was a former prisoner of war in Vietnam in the Hanoi Hilton, who said similar about uh, soldiers who were imprisoned who just stopped trying, stopped communicating with people using the tap code, and they knew that as soon as that happened, they were going to be gone. And more times than not, that's exactly what happened. So there's something about the systemic patterns of bias that diminish people's ability to see the possibility in their life. And when that happens, there's really not much to live for. 
I do make an effort to listen across the political spectrum. I read books from other points of view. So I think I do what you've also tried to do. And that hasn't made me less of a liberal, but it has challenged some of my ideas. And sometimes with those ideas which have been challenged, I then talk to other liberals about them and I get labeled as some kind of a a wacko right-wing person because of it. At one point in the chapter, you're talking about how people who take on victim identities, that they can get trapped in helplessness. And therefore, they've, for instance, they've learned instead of I'm a victim, I'm a survivor. You can change how you see it. And so you survive the Hanoi Hilton or whatever. In identity politics, which is so big in our society, and it's one of the big contentions between left and the right at this point, some of the white people who are, you know, have the privilege of being white in, in our society and the advantages, or have the privilege of being a male, or have the privilege of being heterosexual, any of the advantages that, that convey with being with a the majority, they will deny that there's an advantage. Other folks are saying, hey, look at this victimization, and here's what we're carrying, you know, 400 years of slavery and this identity which goes with it. One of the thoughts I've had is, even if someone is not likely to get out of a bad situation, if they can only believe that they could get out of it, which maybe defies the facts, that they have a better chance of getting out of it, of succeeding, of rising to the top, of doing well. In that chapter, when you were talking, when you actually mentioned about the examples of going from victimization to being a survivor, you didn't address that with respect to the racial discussion in this country. It certainly wasn't omission on purpose. I think it's just, obviously, there's so many things you can cover. But I do think that this notion of victimization, self-victimization, is something that goes across the political spectrum, across race, et cetera. For example, there are many people who feel like the whole conversation about, you know, having people say happy holidays or inclusively, you know, including Hanukkah and Kwanzaa as well as Christmas is somehow a war on Christmas. You know, and that means that Christianity is under attack in our society, even though our society is so dramatically more Christian than it is anything else. You know, when we get into a mindset of victimization, that can happen on all sides of the spectrum. There's a difference between understanding our history, and and I see this, you know, I'm Jewish, my family background is is that we're Jewish, and we had tremendous family tragic experience in the Holocaust. We know 42 or 43 members of my grandfather's family all died on August 2nd and 3rd, 1942, for example when the Nazis came into the village in the western Ukraine that he was born and killed all but 100 of the 5,000 Jews that lived there in two days. And there are more people like that. Now, there are people who hold those experiences as if they'll never be the same or I will always be a victim of the Holocaust. And there are other people who use that experience and grow from it and learn how to be safe in life, but also don't let them them stop them from having a fulfilling life. And it's not always left up to us, of course. People who are deeply traumatized sometimes need need help, both therapeutically and in other ways, to get out of that position. And there's no question that we know that there are a lot of people who've been traumatized by racism in our culture. And, you know, people who've been traumatized and have lost the power to act on their own or to take advantage of some of the things around them are not just wallowing in their victimhood. They're actually traumatized by it. And we know, for example, that there's evidence that people's physical well-being is affected by racism, that there's a, a tax, a physical tax of racism in that it produces so much stress for many people in their circumstances that all that release of cortisol in the system constantly contributes to hypertension 
and heart disease and cancer and lots of other things, and to the fact that the average lifespan of an African-American in our country is considerably lower than the average lifespan of a white person. So I think it, there's no question that we have to be careful about using that language in a way that seems to blame the victim for keeping their own circumstance in place. And that's certainly not what I'm trying to say. I'm simply trying to say that one of the impacts of this kind of systemic bias is that sometimes it creates in people a traumatized experience that makes it difficult for them to pull themselves out of. Another one of the studies that you mentioned or some of the research that you brought forward, Howard, was people looking at the size of a hill to climb. If they had someone next to them who was going to who was talking with them, who was partnering with them, or even imagining someone next to them, the hill looked smaller. It didn't look as high to climb. It's amazing how those fundamental little thoughts are the habits of the way that we think can empower and disempower us. Yeah, and one of the other studies, the similar study to that, if you remember, which was really fascinating, was I think they did it down at Duke University Medical School. They put people in situations where they were inducing pain, but safely. So they put their hand, for example, in ice-cold water, which wasn't going to do any damage to them, but would cause physical pain. And then they would have people either do that by themselves with somebody just simply sitting in a room with them or with somebody actually engaging with them while they were doing that. And they would ask them what the pain level was. And the pain level that they reported for the exact same circumstance was dramatically higher when they were by themselves, less so when somebody was just sitting in a room with them, and even less so when they were engaging with somebody, that even the level of pain we experience can be affected by the sense of community around us. It's amazing. You mentioned your Jewish background. Do you practice as a Jew these days? My spiritual practice is actually broader. There are certain aspects of Judaism that I really love. I also have found real spiritual nurturing in some of the Eastern traditions, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Sufism. Sometimes when people ask me my religion now, I, I write down all doors to the same room because I've learned to really appreciate the beauty in all religions. Absolutely. One of the sad things, though, Howard, is that we're now coming to the end of our time for the interview, and I haven't even hit chapters, what is it, 9 to 11, which is really about the solutions, what we can do, how we can structure our lives, our procedures, our interactions with people in a way to bridge the gap, to eliminate some of this tension, and can develop friends like you did with the person who had responded negatively to you first, but becomes a friend. And unfortunately, we're not going to have time to talk about all of that. But people, what you need to do, therefore, is get a hold of a copy of Our Search for Belonging, How Our Need to Connect is Tearing Us Apart by Howard J. Ross, also with John Robert Tartaglione. By reading that book, you will be enriched. We've scraped the surface here. And really, Howard, we've scraped the surface of your almost 30 years of work in this area. And I do want to remind people, again, cookross.com. Uh, you can find more information about Howard there and the work that he's done with corporations, schools, organizations, so many different people to make our society a little bit closer, better, healed, understanding. But what I really want to say mainly is thank you so much for that work for those almost 30 years for this book, Our Search for Belonging, and for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Mark, it's been such a pleasure. I'm sorry we don't have more time, but I, I really, really appreciate the conversation. And uh, maybe sometime in the future, we'll get to do it again. I would love to do that, Howard. Again, our guest has been Howard Ross, 
go to his website, cookross.com, with a link, of course, on northernspiritradio.org. Also on our site is our listener survey. Respond and get entered into a drawing for your choice of either $25 or a beautiful assortment of Northern Spirit Radio gear, like our t-shirt and tote bag and some music. See the link on northernspiritradio.org. Thanks to Howard and the other contributors to the book, and especially to Catherine Thomas for production assistance on today's program, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo of our healing.